you, Luke. Good morning. Today we are in week two of Advent, and our theme, as you heard earlier this morning, is unexpected. I love what Jonathan said last week as he kicked off our Advent series. He reminded us that a beautiful part of being childlike is the capacity to be surprised in a good way by the unexpected. We kind of almost enjoy that as children. And it's sad how we can kind of become disconnected from that childlike sense of wonder as we get older. We just don't enjoy the unexpected as much as we age, and we tend to opt for some control over what's coming our way. Advent has a way of reconnecting us to that childlike faith and the unexpected arrival of Jesus. There are a lot of things about Jesus' arrival that were unexpected, both his arrival as a baby to Mary and Joseph and his arrival on the scene 30-something years later when he would formally begin his ministry of spreading the gospel. This happens when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and we'll be looking at that story from Scripture today in Matthew chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and turn there. This baptism took place in the Jordan River, what now separates the countries of Jordan and Israel. And I've had the great privilege of seeing this area with my own eyes. When we took a team over to the Middle East to engage with our partners in Lebanon, we flew into Jordan first and we got to visit this site where it is believed that John baptized Jesus. And that spot in the Jordan River was quite unexpected to me. I brought some pictures to show you. There are these stairs that they have since built that go down to the place where they believe this baptism actually took place. Um, there's hardly puddles down at the bottom of that when we were there. And then the picture on the left is looking upriver. There's a building there that's really beautiful that has since been built. Um, the water was low. Things just seemed kind of muddy, really. It was hot. We were out in the middle of nowhere. I'm not really sure what I did expect it to look like. Maybe like rays of sunshine beaming down from heaven or like an angelic choir on repeat. Like you would expect that here, right? Maybe some doves flying around. I didn't really like the unexpected feelings I had around this sacred place when I saw it. I didn't like that I felt like I wanted it to be something more because I had expected something different. Why can unexpectedness be so difficult for us? In meditating on this over the last few weeks, I've identified something about me anyway. I can roll with the punches pretty well. I don't mind surprises. I actually like change. But unexpectedness is really hard for me when it's around something I really care about. And that makes sense, right? I can totally take some unexpectedness, but if it comes around something meaningful to me, something I have a lot of emotional expectation around, I struggle. Unexpectedness like that is hard for me. It's disruptive. The stakes feel very high, and I don't like it. As a follower of Christ, I want to believe that I can expect God to show up for me in moments like that. But I'll be honest, sometimes 
I don't see him anywhere in my circumstances. And that's really hard when the circumstances are ones I care deeply about. Do you ever feel that way? Or sometimes I can see him working in my circumstances, but he doesn't show up how I expect him to. And I care deeply about how I expect him to show up, so I struggle when it looks different. Can you relate? Unexpectedness leaves me feeling really vulnerable, especially when it's around my faith journey or my view on God or how I see him working in my life because I care a lot about those things. I hang a lot of my heart and my hope on those things, and I like to know what to expect there. Well, there are endless things about God and about the way he came into the world and about the way he works in the world that are completely unexpected. One of these unexpected things we're going to look at today is how God uses unexpected people. And this just isn't true during the season of Advent. God using unexpected people is literally all throughout the Bible. We know this. Noah drank too much, but God used him to build the ark and save the world. Abraham and Sarah were an elderly couple with what I would call a dysfunctional marriage who God used to build a nation. Joseph was an entitled teen who God used to save both Egypt and Israel. Moses was a stutterer who was God's spokesman. Rahab was a prostitute who God used to help overtake Jericho. Esther was an adopted orphan who became queen to save Israel. Peter was the quitter who God brought back to start the kingdom that will never end. Paul was the enemy who became the most prolific Christian in the New Testament. And this morning, we're going to focus in on John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus' arrival in ministry. And John the Baptist is a guy who will force us to come face to face with unexpectedness this morning. He is an unexpected character for sure. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So John appears on the scene suddenly and mysteriously, proclaiming the arrival of God's earthly kingdom. And the scene of John's ministry is quite unexpected. It is in the wilderness of Judea. Now, if you were a Jew, the wilderness kind of carried a lot of emotional and spiritual baggage with it. That was the scene of 40 years of wandering under extreme, unexpected physical conditions, of unexpected testing of faith, of unexpected ways of provision. Out there in the wilderness, 
John ate unexpected things like locusts. That was a poor man's diet. Only poor people ate locusts. Eating bugs, wearing clothes made out of camel hair. I imagine people didn't really know what to do with John. I think we still really don't know what to do with him, especially when it comes to Advent, which is crazy because John the Baptist should be like the Advent mascot. Advent is about preparing ourselves for the arrival of Jesus. That was John's literal job, preparing people, announcing Jesus' arrival. John's preaching of the coming of the Lord and his kingdom is a key theme of the Advent season. He is one of the foremost figures of Advent, at least in the preaching calendar, which most churches use. We follow that as well. So, like, why don't we have John the Baptist Christmas ornaments? We had pickle ornaments last year. I didn't see a single John the Baptist Christmas ornament. I have yet to see a John the Baptist ugly Christmas sweater. Like, that makes sense to me. And I have not seen a single Advent calendar with John the Baptist on it. I have seen one with many faces of different kinds of dogs, but not John the Baptist. Perhaps it's because of how unexpected a character he is in all of this. Here are some pictures that I pulled from the Google of John the Baptist. Oh, gosh, John. You know, let yourself go there, buddy. I don't think his face would look normal at all on a Christmas card. Well... I don't know. You put some little ornaments and sign it, Love John. I guess it works. The brood of vipers thing is a little, I don't know. I wouldn't put that on your Christmas card. I don't think that works for us. (laughs) Unexpected indeed. Well, however unexpected John the Baptist came across to people back then, that did not stop them from seeking him out. What an unexpected scenario. John isn't on the corner of Main Street, downtown, preaching and baptizing. He's out in the wilderness, outside of any established community. And people came to him out there from miles and miles away. That's how well-renowned he was. And his message was so convincing that once people got out there into the wilderness and heard him preaching, they would just line up to confess their sins and be baptized. And John would baptize them right then and there in the Jordan River. Baptism represented purification to the Jews. Ceremonial washings were a part of their history. They were very familiar with this practice. John's baptism carried with it this same symbol, purification and repentance. But the way John baptized was unexpected. In other types of ceremonial cleansing, the person washed himself or herself. John unexpectedly baptized other people. And this confession of sins by individuals was a new thing in Israel. There was this collective confession on the great day of atonement, a day when all of Israel would fast and pray on behalf of the entire nation. But until John... There was no great, spontaneous, unexpected crowds of people, each individually saying, I am moved to repentance. I want to be baptized. What a beautiful scene. I can picture John there 
out in the river. I can imagine the crowds that must have gathered around him on this day. And I've driven the distance that these people walked just to get out there. It's really remote. Well, among the crowds of people gathered on the banks of the Jordan around John the Baptist were an unexpected group of religious leaders. They had come to see what all the hubbub was about. And John sees them as they approach and he calls them out at a level of antagonism that I imagine was rather unexpected. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, there it is, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Nice, John. Brood of vipers. I just, I love that so much. Vipers is a word that Isaiah used to describe God's enemies. John's use of it associates him with the former prophets and just reflects his prophetic authority. And he uses that, and he attacks these established religious constructs of his day, saying, don't think for a second that just because you were born into this thing means you've got some kind of leg up on those who weren't. The true test of being a child of God is the fruit you bear. If you're not bearing good fruit, it doesn't matter who you are. The axe is already at the root, ready to cut you down. It's almost as if John is heralding Emmanuel, God with us. But just so we're clear, right out of the gate, you do not get to define who the us is going to be. No religious tradition, no normal set of expectations can claim God's sovereignty in determining who is in that group of us that God is with. And John doesn't proclaim Jesus as a captivating infant smiling and cooing at groups of shepherds and magi and barn animals. Instead, he cries out with his wild eyes and matted hair, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right, John, we get it. This is not quite the Christmas cheer we were expecting this morning. This is what the cry of John the Baptist was all about. If you want to be ready to receive the long-awaited Messiah, you must repent. You have to change your way of thinking and adopt a new set of values. Because those things you think keep you in good standing, they actually don't. Those things you think disqualify you from being in good standing, they actually don't. The gospel turns everything upside down and says you are blessed if you are not offended by this unexpected rearrangement. The gospel calls us to reverse our values. And sometimes we struggle with that unexpectedness. And that 
could be the reason that some can't even see the kingdom of heaven taking shape around them. We can totally miss it. You know what's unexpected about John? He actually missed some of this himself. Let's just circle back to some of his rhetoric that we just heard from him. What do the things John said about how he thought Jesus would arrive and would act tell us about John's expectations of Jesus? Brood of vipers fleeing from the coming wrath. His deadly axe is at the root ready to cut it down and throw it into the fire. Fork in hand, he will thrash the fields, set the bad stuff ablaze with an unquenchable fire. These are some powerful images. This shook people up. It seems like John's expectations of Jesus were that Jesus would be very conquering, swift to act, to chop down. John's final two words of this picture of Jesus that he's painting being unquenchable fire. And then I want to point something out on this visual here. Up at the top are these words we've just heard from John. And then you see these two breaks. This is how it would typically appear in your Bible if you're using a paper Bible. It might look a little different if you're on your phone. Um, but these breaks are called pericopes. That's kind of a weird word. But around 500 AD, when the Bible was mass-produced by scribes who are writing this, these were included as a helpful way just to distinguish between certain scripture passages. And publishers, when they mass-printed the Bible, they liked them, so they kept them. They're not original to the text. These aren't the breaks that the authors used. So they can sometimes make one scene look like two scenes or three separate scenes. And so despite the breaks that you see in your Bibles, the text itself here has no such break. Verse 12 slides right into verse 13. We go immediately from unquenchable fire to Jesus' arrival on the scene. He shows up even as John is saying those very words. And it seems like John doesn't even notice him. John's so wrapped up in his passion and fire, brimstone preaching, he must have missed Jesus like shuffling through the crowd, past the line of people to get down into the river. It seems like when John does finally see Jesus, Jesus has already queued himself up to be next. He's ready to be baptized. And John is like, well, this is unexpected. Hello, Jesus. What are you doing here? I don't baptize you. You baptize me. You're the deadly axe, the unquenchable fire. I'm not even fit to carry your sandals. You're so powerful. You don't need to be baptized. Just set your fire loose on those Pharisees I was just giving it to. Let everyone see you for who you are. But Jesus assures John of his intentions. No, John, you baptize me. And this will be the first step in making everything right again. And so John consents, and he baptized the Son of God for no reason he could see. And when Jesus emerges from the water, what looked like a dove fluttered down upon his head. A dove. Not like a hawk breathing fire. Not an axe. Not unquenchable fire. A gentle and mild dove. It goes without saying that at least in spiritual terms, John had presented Jesus in a very hawkish light. But Jesus shows up every bit like the dove 
that settled upon him. A quiet, humble man, willing to undergo a baptism of repentance because he believes that somehow that humble act will be step one in setting everything right once more. Now, fast forward to Matthew chapter 11. John has been arrested and he's rotting in prison. He's waiting what was going to turn out to be his beheading. Jesus had been out and about doing his ministry for quite a while by then, but John had yet to see any fire in this man's belly. So he sends out a few of his friends to go find Jesus and to ask him the ultimate question. Jesus, are you the one who is coming? Or should we start looking for another? That question is shattering. How unexpected it is to see that for at least a time, John was disappointed in the Messiah that showed up. Jesus was a quiet, almost obscure figure who obviously believed that the world would change finally, not through might, but through love and grace. Sacrifice, not conquest. Humility, not self-important pride. Forgiveness, not punishment. Weakness, not power. Those were the tools that Jesus wielded. He changed the world, but not with winnowing forks, axes, and fire. Advent is about preparing ourselves for the arrival of Jesus and his kingdom in our hearts and lives. John's message was that the kingdom of heaven was near. Jesus' message was that the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus was saying that 2,000 years ago, and he's still saying it today. But the way he is here can be unexpected to us. We look for him as if maybe we think he'd be easier to spot. We look for him in the ways we would expect him to show up. You know, by just filling that hole of grief in my heart left by heartbreak. Jesus, by just taking away the pain of the past. Jesus, by just letting me have some control over these things in my life that I care deeply about. Those are the ways we expect him to show up. But those things are about protecting ourselves and our survival instincts our instinct to protect our fragile egos, our instinct to protect our hearts from pain. Jesus' invitation is to prepare the way in our hearts for his kingdom to be able to grow and flourish there. And that invitation comes with unexpected tools that he wants us to learn how to use. And the tools he offers seem all rusty and awkward to me. Tools like forgiveness and trust, self-sacrifice, long-suffering, patience, meekness, radical self-love, humility, empathy, 
Those tools are so much harder to use than the easy swing of a heavy axe. If you're anything like me, when Jesus hands you an unexpected tool and asks you to take, of an, take care of an unexpected, painful situation with it, you might doubt whether he knows what he's doing or whether he has your best interest in mind or maybe he doesn't even care as deeply as you do. Jesus, are you sure you're the right man for the job? Are you the one who is coming or should I start looking for another Those were John the Baptist's questions for Jesus as he sat in his prison cell. And here, on our second Sunday of Advent of the year 2022, 2,000 years later, those questions still hang thick in the air of this room and weigh heavy on our hearts. It's okay if you're asking those questions. I know I am. I wrestle with them. That wrestling is important to our journeys of faith. It's sacred, really. Jesus' response to John when he unexpectedly asked John to baptize him and John initially refused was, I know this feels unexpected. I know I am not what you expected and neither is the scenario you found yourself in. But this is the first step in making everything right again. You have to trust me on this. As we close this morning, could we stand together and pray? Jesus, would you reconnect us to the childlike wonder of your unexpectedness? Would you help us to let go of the grip we have on our expectations of you and how you work and what you're doing? Would you give us the courage to pick up the tools that you give us, even when they seem so difficult to learn to use? Would you open our eyes to see your kingdom taking shape around us? Let's pray the words on the screens out loud together. God of timeless grace, you fill us with joyful expectation. Settle within us this message that prepares the way. Laboring God, you clear a holy space where hurt and destruction have no place. Clear our lives of hatred and despair so seeds of joy and peace, so hope may spring forth, and we may live in harmony with one another. God of hope, you raised up John the baptizer as a herald who calls us to change. As we joyfully await the glorious coming of Christ, we pray to you for the needs of the church and the world. Hear our humble prayer that we may serve you in holiness and faith and give voice to your presence among us. Amen.